Welcome to Save What You Love, I'm Mark Titus. Today we get to hang out with Melanie Brown. Melanie's a dear friend of mine from Bristol Bay and is a fifth generation indigenous fisherman from the Bay. Uh, Melanie's also just got the biggest heart I know. She's been working on the campaign to protect Bristol Bay for decades now with many other people. We have traveled all over the country together preaching the gospel of wild salmon and Bristol Bay. And here today, she gets to share that very personal and very important message with you. If you enjoy the show, uh, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a big difference. And you can check us out on Instagram at Save What You Love Podcast. And if you want anything further, more information or a way to help by uh, using your dollars to protect Bristol Bay, you can go to avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. Thanks for listening. So glad you're with us. Enjoy the show. How do you say what you love when the world is burning down? How do you say what you love and bushes come to shove? How do you say what you love when things are upside down? Melanie Brown, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you know, these last 10 years or so, I feel like I've seen you more in person than my own family <laughs> all over the country. Uh, we've been busy. What, for our listeners, has kept you moving at the speed you do in your life's work? Why have we been passing each other in the night so much? Well, I guess the the most pointed answer would be um, the proposed pebble mine. <laughs> yep. So um, we're going to dive into the proposed pebble mine, but uh, can you give us a just top level view of what that is and what's at stake in Bristol Bay, Alaska? Yeah. Well, I guess the biggest thing that's at stake is the last great wild salmon run that is left in the world. Um, and all because of uh, people who are, they, they can't seem to resist the idea of digging a big hole in the ground so that they can get some um, copper, gold, and molybdenum out of it in the order of 11 billion tons. Um, that's the estimated size of, of the deposit. And it sits at the headwaters of the two most prolific salmon rivers in Bristol Bay, the, the Nushagak and the Quijak river systems. Um, and there are a number of uh, communities along the Nushagak and associated with um, Iliamna Lake that drains into um, the Quijak. And a lot of people's lives stand to be changed drastically by this project. And is this a local Alaskan company or an American company who's working on this endeavor? No, it's a multinational company. Uh, Northern Dynasty Minerals um, is, they're based in Vancouver. And that's right, isn't it? They're, they're in Vancouver. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, the state of Alaska 
is giving a free pass to a multinational company. And in my opinion, it seems as if they are prioritizing um, the interests of, of the, this outside interest over those of Alaskans. And they've proven it in very many ways, um, from, from the permitting of the project to uh, the recent appeal that they, they filed against the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' denial of the uh, federal permit. Well, we're going we're gonna to do a deep dive in, into more of this, but I, th- I think it's important just to kind of paint the picture and understand that this is not some kind of homegrown endeavor to help Alaskans. It's, in fact, to, to my understanding, uh, the state of Alaska, people generally, 62% of Alaskans don't want this thing to happen. And 80% of people that actually live in Bristol Bay and make it their home don't want this thing to happen. So just wanted to kind of lay that groundwork um, before I dig into the next part of this, which is your family. You, you've you got deep roots in Bristol Bay. Can you, can you tell us about uh, your family and how it factors in to this place and why it's so special for you? Sure. Um, so I, I first visited Bristol Bay to visit my great-grandparents. Um, and because my parents were there for their fishing season, my great-grandparents, Paul and Anna Chacon, they were the first generation of commercial fishermen in our family. But prior to that, they, they would have depended utterly um, on the wild salmon uh, for their existence and survival. But my, my great-grandfather, he started fishing during the sailboat era. He, um, he asked for, a, for the use of a company boat at Red Salmon Cannery when the Brindles were running it and was granted a double-ender sailboat so that he could start, you know, earning some money um, to, to buy staples, you know, in the cash economy. And... And then my, my mother started fishing with him when she was 10 years old, uh, when he had um, transitioned to becoming a set netter. And, and then when I was 10 years old, I started fishing with my family. And my great-grandpa was still out there fishing, too, uh, with the permit that he earned through, limit, through the limited entry process. And um, I continue to fish the site that my great-grandpa staked out to this day. And now I fish with my uh, my two children on that site. So, so we have a, a number of generations um, of fishermen in our family. And um, my, my dad became a fisherman when he met my mom, too. He, he was a drift fisherman. We'll get into drift and set here, too, in a sec, um, talk about the difference between those two. But you mentioned the cash economy and that your grandpa, your great-grandpa, Paul, he he wasn't too, too, too far off from it not necessarily being a cash economy. And what, like, how far back does your family ancestry go in the Bay? It's hard to say exactly because my, my mom, she, you know, she's done a lot of work to try to piece together the history, you know, because so much information and knowledge was lost in the great pandemic that swept through Bristol Bay a century ago. And people had to find ways of filling in knowledge gaps. And fortunately, the salmon were there to um, support them and provide the sustenance that they needed. But my, 
my great-grandparents were left to, to raise themselves when they were orphaned because of the pandemic. And, but when, when my mom was doing some of her research to learn more about our family, she found that the name Shukan existed in, um, out in the Aleutians. I, I can't remember which island she said she found a census record for, for you know, that included that name. But when I grew up, I, I was always told that on my mom's side, I was Aleut. And it confused me because my, my great-grandparents spoke Yupik. But it's, I guess that's a testament to, to how much people, people migrated to follow fish and game. Um, but I, I do know that my great-grandpa was born into a um, traditional existence. He was born um, in a Barabara, and he, he almost died in one um, during the pandemic. And, and when the pandemic was over, all of those old traditional uh, semi-subterranean sod houses were, they were abandoned and burned and people walked into um, a more modern existence, I guess you could say. And, um, and then started recognizing that they, you know, there were certain basic food staples that they, they wanted to incorporate into their, their food ways and, they needed money for that. So, so that's, I guess, how the evolution, I can only surmise, that, you know, that that's how, how things evolved. So we're, we're talking about 1918, the, the, the previous global pandemic that was so devastating was the Spanish flu. Is that right? Uh, yes. Okay. So it's about 1918. And, um, before we get into why the food, because it's so important, can you give us a little bit of a uh, anthropological uh, sketch on the people of Bristol Bay? I mean, you've mentioned the Aleuts and the Yupik. Um, mm-hmm. How does that how does that look in terms of where people moved into and moved and followed the the salmon and the game around, like you mentioned? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best to to sort of paint a picture. Um, so uh, I, one thing that I haven't mentioned is that there would have been migration associated with the um, Russian American company as well. You know, the Russians came in to exploit the fur, you know, furs of Alaska. Um, and so, and the first people that they encountered were the Unangan people, uh, but the Russians referred to them as Aleuts. Um, so that was an imposed name. I'm not sure what the origin of that name is, but uh, Unangan is the self-given name of the people. Um, instead of the, the ethnonym, it's the autonym of the people. And then as you head eastward, um, there's a language boundary, according to the Alaska Native Language Map, where you'll see um, Alutik and Sukhpiak, those are synonymous terms, but Alutik is the imposed name. Sukhpiak is the self-given name of the people who reside on, on the Alaska Peninsula and Kodiak Island. And, and then when you move further east into um, the region of Bristol Bay, that's where you en- encounter uh, Yupik people. And um, Sukhpiak also is, is a, a culture that exists in Bristol Bay and then the, if you go inland, um, uh, upriver, 
that you'll encounter Dana'ina people and they're uh, Dene people or Athabascan people. So it, Bristol Bay is a very multicultural uh, place. And I, I really, I believe that um, it drew a lot of cultures in because of the richness associated with the salmon and what the salmon bring to the land. Well, one major thing salmon bring to the land, they bring a lot of things, um, cultural identity, spiritual continuity, but obviously there's food. And it's such a central binding element in your life, I know, because of our friendship and all of the things that we have participated in together over the years. Um, and you, you speak of food with such tenderness and reverence at the same time. You, here's a little quote from something you wrote in an article um, where you generously gave out the recipe for your Uma's famed fish soup. You wrote, uh, the cartilage in the head is easy to chew through and very flavorful. Other bits that aren't edible will stay between your teeth when you bite down and you can sort them out. Make sure that you suck the juice out of the bits before taking them out of your mouth. Your hands will get sticky from the richness of the oil. Just accept the fact that your meal will be very tactile and visceral experience and enjoy. So it, I just love this because it's practical and loving and respectful. And you seem to kind of give us a little wink too. Why are your home foods so central to your life and your love of family and the land you come from? Oh, that's a big question. But I feel like in many ways, the way that you frame the question answers it too. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really happy that you recognize those things in me because they are true. Um, to me, food is so foundational. We can't exist without food. And that is why it's so important to me what I put into my body, what I choose to put in my body, um, what I choose to support with my dollars too, you know. Um, but but when I, when I get to participate in um, eating and sharing traditional foods or foods that are from the land, um, that I know are from healthy lands, that to me is like the most wonderful way to partake uh, of food um, with other people and to, um, to just share, share the goodness <laughs> of that food. I, um, it's, it's just such a simple pleasure that can be so elevating at the same time. Well, it's, and, you know, I did mention that I didn't misspeak. That's, we're talking about the head of the salmon. Um, I think we're getting a little more aware about eating all the parts of, uh, if we're using animals uh, as our protein source, we are getting more aware and better at utilizing the whole fish. And um, that's probably a little unfamiliar and maybe a little squeamish for people in the lower 48. Um, and yet I've, I've had it. It's delicious. And it's also so friggin' good for you. I mean, like you said, like putting that into your, your body is in my opinion, it's the best protein source you can possibly do. And it regenerates itself. That's, you know, can you speak to that 
um, absolute fecundity of the region and why that is such a unique thing now in a world where wild salmon runs have have all but disappeared. I guess, uh, uh, well, be, before I do that, I, I would like to uh, thank you for for putting in a plug for full utilization of the salmon. I think it's really important. It, um, I think it's, it's a really beautiful way of honoring the, the fish by fully utilizing it. But also there's just so much flavor that can be, um, br- you know, brought out of the fish. If you, if you save the backbone and you, you strip it clean uh, with a spoon and use that use that meat to make make things. You know, it, it, sure, it may not be a beautiful fillet, but you you have these amazing bits that you can make tacos with, or what, what, all kinds of things. The sky's the limit. And then the backbone, if you boil it down, you can end up with such an amazing bone broth, um, which I know people are really into these days. You know that that you can repurpose into another meal. It's really easy to just freeze in a jar um, and and use it later, and just add so much flavor, richness, and health and vitality um, that that comes from the bones. But mostly, I just I feel like it's it's a terrible sin to waste waste um, parts of the fish that can be um, used. And I I'm really happy to see that there is sort of a movement toward that in. Um, in the fish as food industry. Um, but going back to what, what you're talking about, that the cycle of how um, salmon regenerate the land, it's, it's just, it's incredible to, to know that when salmon return, not only do they give their lives in their, their spawning, you know, they die soon after, their, their bodies fertilize the land. And the further upriver they swim, the, the more nutrients they're bringing to, to the land. And then in turn, those nutrients, they, they end up eventually nurturing um, caribou and moose who browse on the, you know, the water's edge uh, on the, the tundra that the that the salmon fertilize. So it's this, it's this regenerative cycle that um, it's, if you're dealing with an intact system, um, an ecosystem that is, has not been interrupted, this, the relationship is boundless. It, you know, it's something that, you know, where all these nutrients, they, they're able to, to cycle and continue in a way that is just, it's so beautiful. And that's why I feel it, it is so important to keep this ground intact because it's doing much more than, than we know, than we can even recognize by just looking at it. And these fish coming back, can you describe for us what this experience is like? I mean, most of us, we see salmon returning and we see, you know, 10 to 20 in a river, maybe a hundred in a river. I know Bristol Bay is a marvel in its, its absolute richness of its biomass. Can you describe for us a little bit about what that's like when these salmon come home and and the sheer numbers of salmon that return to Bristol Bay? 
Yeah, it's it's actually kind of um, it's almost like gut sinking and heart sinking and exhilarating at the same time. I, I when I refer to the gut sinking part of it, I'm referring <laughs> to being in my skiff and recognizing that my net has been plugged. Just about every mesh has been plugged by salmon, um, you know, making their their way up home, you know, upstream uh, to to go back home. And it's yeah, it, it's pretty daunting when when you look at a net like that. But at the same time, it's like it's amazing how it powers you up, and it's it's quite a sight to behold. And it just seems seems boundless, endless <laughs> when you um, you. You know, as soon as sometimes you, you'll you'll be clearing gear, and and you look behind, and you're catching just as fast as you're picking. I mean that that's how abundant the numbers of the return are. You know, when when the the salmon come back, um, they come back in such force, and it's um, it's pretty amazing. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Are we talking about in the hundreds of thousands? Are we talking about the, what, what are we looking at? Uh, we're talking about tens of millions of salmon returning. Um, hmm. the, in the past few years, um, the predictions that come out of UW and ADF&G um, have been exceeded. Um, and the, the average returns have, have been um, 50 million plus wow. returning. And that's just sockeye salmon alone. Um, Bristol Bay returns all five species of Pacific salmon. Um, if you count rainbows, which are also a salmonid, that, that's yet another, another species. So you refer to UW and ADF&G, and that's the University of Washington. Uh, they have a fisheries uh, research Institute there. Um, it's the Alaska Fisheries Program. I know they've been there for over 70 years. I think it's the oldest cold water. It's the most extensive data set for cold water fisheries there is. And then ADF&G is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. And from what I know, uh, those numbers that they, those predicting numbers every year seem to correlate pretty closely. And they, they, they're pretty, pretty spot on, aren't they from year to year? They're, yeah, definitely. The, the predictive modeling, it's, you know, because they've collected so much data over time, um, it, it is, it's amazing what they're, they're able to come up with. But there have been, been some years where they were like, they were too cons- conservative in their estimates and the numbers far exceeded their pred- predictions, <laughs> which is <laughs> which, not a bad thing. To not a bad thing. But now that point that brings us right back to you in your boat, <laughs> watching this onslaught come on. And you've, you started doing this when you were 10 years old, when it was the earliest allowable time. And I know that you have got your kids involved when they were super young. Um, this is really hard work. I, I don't think most of us know what it's like set netting. So can, can you describe for us what set netting is like? What, why is that different from drift fishing? And what's the work like every day when you're doing this? And then why do you do it if it's such hard work? <laughs> um, so set netting is, um, it, it, we use uh, gill net gear. Gill net 
is the only gear type that's allowed in Bristol Bay for um, fishing for salmon. And um, set netters are entitled, you know, through their permit uh, that's issued through the Commercial Fisheries Entry Commission in Alaska. Um, uh, set net permit is entitled to fish 50 fathoms of gear. A fathom is six feet, so that's 300 feet of gear. And the gear is set perpendicular to the shoreline. Um, and what we do is we, we uh, have an anchor set on the inside. It, it's uh, up there. I think we have a screw anchor um, or it might be a, actually it's a duckbill anchor. It's a, it's a buried earth anchor with an, with a cable and eye that we, we tie our running line to, or our anchor line. And, and then we string it out and tie it to our outside anchor, um, which is a screw anchor. And, and then the outside is floated by a big barrel. It has to be this sort of like a fire engine red, um, and, that, and then we paint our set net number on there. And so the line is out and ready whenever an opening is called by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. And, and then we, um, at the instant that the opening begins, we, we start, um, you know, we have our end tied off and our corks and mesh can't hit the water until the opening um, is official. And, and then we just start pulling on the line toward the inside, toward the high side of the beach. And, um, and then the, the net sets itself, you know, it just sort of pulls out of the trailing edge of the skiff. Um, and, and we tie it off at different intervals and hope that we start seeing strikes as soon as it hits the water. <laughs> it's really exciting to see see the um, the strikers hit the gear because um, they hit with such force. Um, but drift fishermen they um, they're entitled to 150 fathoms of gear with their permit. But if they have a second permit holder on board, then they can add another 50 fathoms of gear. It's actually um, it's sort of a counterintuitive kind of uh, concept. Um, it seems as if, you know, stacking permits maybe is, is not a conservation measure, but it actually takes gear out of the water. You know, a hundred fathoms of gear are taken out of the water, but a, a lot of people do it in Bristol Bay just so that they can, um, it's a way of sort of consolidating the, the cost of having an, another boat because, because, um, having a boat is, it's a really expensive, it's capital expenditure. Um, so, so when people team up, um, on a boat, it, you know, it's, it's a way of just ma making it easier financially to get, get started in Bristol Bay. So you're just so, a, you're doing a great job of, of vision. I'm seeing the whole thing as you're, as you're <laughs> describing it, but so basically a set net is a fixed net on the beach, hoping to intercept salmon that intercept salmon that come by and then a drift net actually drifts and floats behind the boat or with the tide correct yes the the um you know when a, a drift fisherman is getting ready to set out their gear they have to anticipate which direction the salmon are coming from and um also consider the wind and the tide and the, the direction that they're they're pushing in um and generally 
at the top of an opener, you know, that the, well, always the tide is coming in, um, that that's how our openings happen in Bristol Bay. They, they're timed with the incoming tide and ADF and G usually gives the set netters, um, an hour head start because it takes longer for the water to hit our, our part of the beach, you know, to get high enough to, to hit the beach where our gear is. Um, but it also and these are big, gives, these are big tides. Sorry to interrupt. Th- these are big tides, right? I mean, like yes. we're talking, it's not just a couple feet. This is no. moving. We have really huge tidal swing in Bristol Bay. Um, we have, um, minus tides as big as seven feet and, um, and then they can swing on up to say 25 feet. It's not uncommon oh, for us smokes. to have a 25 foot foot tide. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it can, the force of the water it's, it's really, that's, that's pretty daunting too. <laughs> you know, um, the force of the tide, it's, it, um, you have to really respect it and make sure that you're, you're always paying attention to, um, what the tide could possibly do to you and your operation. Um, yeah. So, so the tide, the tide comes in and the fish presumably are coming in with the tide and they hit your net and they, you see, you see where they're hit, hitting your net by the splashes that are made. And, and then the tide goes back out. Like what does the work look like at that point then? So you, usually what we, we do is, you know, as the tide, as the fish come in with the tide, we, we stay and we clear, clear our gear at, after, um, after we set it. And, um, if it looks like there's a, a good flurry, you know, that that's happening, well, you know, we'll stay, you know, sometimes the, you know, there, there will just, just be a, a flurry at the top of the tide with the incoming tide, because the fish usually like to pool outside the district and then have a big push in with the tide because they know that'll help, help them conserve their energy. They're, they're taking advantage of the force of the tide to, to get up river. And, um, so, so it, usually at the top of the tide, unless the, there are just no fish around, we'll, we'll see, see a good flurry and clear our gear and, uh, a couple of times just to see if we're continuing to catch. And oftentimes when the fish aren't really running hard, there'll be, a um, a lull, you know, after that initial flurry. So we take that time to go home and rest, um, before we come back after the, the high tide, we usually will go back about an hour after the high tide and start picking again. And then we, we stay until, till the water is out. Um, if we're, if we don't have a closure, um, you know, sometimes we'll just get one, one tide openings and we have to pull our gear in at the end of say an eight hour period. And, um, wait until another opening is called. But once ADF and G has a sense that, oh, we're on track here, you know, we're hitting our, our targets as the season goes along, that our escapement goals, um, then, uh, so escapement is the, you know, the fish that make it up past the counting tower to ensure that enough salmon have escaped for sustainability. Uh, right. You know, so that there are enough that have re- the the target number for uh, for NACNIC, the ideal um, goal is uh, a million. Usually, that's that's our target escapement for our river system. 
So that's that's a, the number necessary to uh, be counted of fish going upriver before folks actually are harvesting them. Um, usually, we don't sit and wait until the entire escapement goal has been met. There are there are sort of I guess landmarks along the way that help ADF and G. That's my understanding. Is it, you know it helps them determine whether or not we're on track and. If it looks like we're slow to meet the the goals that are set um, during the course of the season, then they have us pull our gear in and we can't fish. And we, we have to wait until there's, you know, that m- more, more fish have just have gone up without um, being caught. So, um, yeah, does that answer your question? Sure does. And so... So you're um, you're out there, and this is obviously very exposed work. You're in the elements. It's muddy. Uh, it can be cold. It can be hot. Um, but you're out there with your kids. Uh, you've got two kids, Mariana and Oliver. What does it mean to you to to do this hard work with your family and understanding that, that how far back generationally this goes? How does that feel to you? It feels pretty good. <laughs> um, I really, I, I'm so proud that that they're in the skiff with me now. O- Oliver, um, he his the last season that we fished, he had a really, um, it was kind of a breakthrough year for him. Um, he's 13 now, and and I think he's really going to be ready to um, contribute a lot of hard work to to the operation of the next season that we fish. He's, you know, he's he's getting stronger now. Um, I think I, I've incorporated my kids in maybe a little more slowly than I, I came in. But when I, when I started fishing, we were still just fishing from the beach. My mom um, felt uneasy about my great-grandpa being out on the water anymore because his sight was getting so weak and, and he was getting older. And um, so we, we ended up, you know, just doing everything from the beach and, um, you know, d- delivering from the shore but um, by the time I was about 14 or so, we recognized that um, it would be a lot more efficient to start working from a skiff again. And so I, I threw myself into that. And I, I don't think I would have been ready, really, to be in the skiff. The skiff is a great tool. It makes everything a lot more efficient, but it, it really intensifies things, too. And, and I'm glad that I was able to start from the beach and then recognize the benefit of fishing from the skiff. But I wouldn't have been ready to be out on the water all the time, uh, you know, like all the time that we were fishing, um, at age 10. So yeah, I just kind of brought my kids in slowly. And my daughter is, she's such a huge asset in our operation now. And she comes out every tide and, um, Oliver, I was, I was just letting him sleep on the night tides, um, the last season that we fished. Cause I just felt like he needs to sleep and grow <laughs> and, and he could come out with us during the day. But I, I think that this next season he'll be, he'll be coming out with us every tide, whether they're the tides are in the nighttime or not. So cool. Uh, doing this together as a family. Do you think those kids have a sense at this point of, I don't know, the bigger picture about this resource It's beyond just the work, but that this is, is sacred. It's feeding people, and it's uh, a continuation of of things for 
multiple generations. And uh, do you, do you, the kids have that kind of sense at this point, that, that kind of um, uh, continuity? I, I think that they must. I, um, it's not something that I want to be pounding into their heads. You know, like I want them to have their own, develop their own ideas around things. But I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to, to put good thoughts in front of them <laughs> that they can take or leave. Um, and I'd like to think that I'm, I'm setting an example in some ways. Um, but I think just the fact that they, they get to be in contact with the salmon, the way that they, they do that alone is, is a really big teacher. I know, you know, like I, I've learned so many life lessons from, you know, every season that I've, I've fished there. Yeah. So hopefully they're, they are too. <laughs> We've been talking frequently on, on this show about, um, well, with folks in the sport fishing community, um, really in any kind of topic we're talking about how important connection is. And it seems like this is the same thing here that if, if these, kids of yours are touching these fish, if they're handling the fish, if they're seeing the tide come in and out, if they're eating the fish, taking it in, and then, you know, giving it to other people, essentially, it seems like they will be more suited to be protectors and warriors for this place for the next generation. Would, would you agree with that? I, yeah, I, I would. But at the same time, I guess, you know, just looking back on my experience, I think in in many ways, you know, I I could see the wonder of it all, but at the same in many ways I, I was also also taking it for granted. And it and it took the threat of the proposed pebble mine for me to really start creating more clear focus around how important this this run is and and having connection with salmon, being in relation with salmon and all that they connect to. Um, but I, yeah, sometimes there are just, there are moments that create clarity for you. And, but I, I think that in order for those moments to really mean something, they, that clarity has to come through you in your, your own way. And, and that's why I'm not trying to just bang my kids over the head with my beliefs. Um, I, I, I think it'll mean a lot more to them if, if it comes to them, uh, when they're ready, right? you know, and I, I, I'd like to think though, in a small way, it's already there. <laughs> I don't think it's possible for me anyway, coming from my experience my little brain and and experience of being in in the bay over the years um it's really difficult to not be profoundly affected by the fish and the relationship and the the land and the water um but it's really great to to hear that you know you're hands off or you're at least letting your kids experience it and find it on their own but here we are. It's 2021. We're still talking about Bristol Bay and the proposed pebble mine. 
so many folks listening would say, how is that possible? Why are we still talking about this? Can you, obviously, the uh, the fight in Bristol Bay f- against the proposed pebble mine uh, has been the topic of both uh, of my uh, documentaries, the, the Breach in the Wild. Can you give us an up-to-date uh, little check-in on where we are with this issue? Why are we still fighting for this? And h- how is this still going on? And where are we right now in this moment? Okay, so yeah, Northern Dynasty Minerals or the the Pebble Limited Partnership, they they have been very tenacious about this. And the thing that's really crazy is that Northern Dynasty Minerals is just a junior company and they do not have a development partner at this point in time. All of the development partners have, you know, there have been many and they've all come and gone. Uh, And then the last potential partner, they just, they paid for an option while they investigated and decided. And in the end, they opted out. So that, you know, it really begs the question, why is Northern Dynasty Minerals moving forward on this when they don't even have a development partner to build this mine with? But I guess the, the idea is that if they do get permitted, then it will attract a developer. But um, they've done all kinds of things, you know, first uh, withholding a mine plan, you know, because they were waiting for favorable, um, a a more favorable administration. So, you know, knowing that if they, you know, initiated their permitting process during a favorable administration, things would move along for them more quickly. And they did during the Trump administration that things clipped along really fast and comment periods were uh, shortened greatly. You know, normally during uh, the NEPA process, you know, like scoping, the scoping process alone or alone and like the, the comment periods associated with the um, the preliminary EIS, they're usually a minimum of 270 days and the comment periods associated with with the Pebble NEPA process were only 90 days. So, and then uh, also, you know, they, one of the ways that they made their, their permit more um, appealing uh, or more environmentally friendly was um, to submit a, a mine plan that was only one-tenth of the actual size of the deposit. And, um, you know, ar- arguing that, well, there won't, will be no environmental harm with this size of plan but we all know that, you know, of course they're not going to stop at one-tenth of the deposit. You know, once they've mined that to its full extent, then they are going to um, apply for a, you know, to, to keep going. It's been really frustrating to, to try to make these points and, you know, have them fall on de- deaf ears. But in November, we, we got a really big surprise with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers denying the permit. And it gave us some hope. But at the same time, we, you know, those of us who've been working on this for a long time were just anticipating what, you know, oh, what's next? They're probably going to appeal. They have this long to appeal. And um, at the very end of uh, the time that they had, they did. So there's uh, right now that there's an appeals process going on. Um, 
And even our, the state of Alaska decided to um, submit an appeal, even though they don't have any grounds to appeal on. But it um, it it was just uh, a, a sign of what we already knew that the state of Alaska has has done a lot to um, work in partnership with um, Pebble Limited Partnership and to to make it easier for for their permits to go through and in some cases like if you really dig into the history you'll see that the department of natural resources has done all kinds of things to uh, make it easier for for this project and projects like it to move forward yeah so let's pause there for a second because this is perplexing um i get this question almost every time we have a screening of the wild why would the state of Alaska be complicit in trying to ease the process of a mine going into Bristol Bay when 80% of the Bristol Bay residents don't want this mine there, 62% of Alaskans don't want it there, and it's very apparent that this would be a short-term financial hit. Are they betting on the financial windfall from this in the immediate versus what is at stake there and the risk associated with putting a giant open pit low-grade sulfur copper mine in the headwaters of the last intact, fully, uh, you know, regenerative salmon system on earth. What, what is their thinking about that? Well, my fear and that of many others is that, um, you know, if you really look at kind of even a, a bigger picture, Pe- Pebble isn't the only claim of concern in Bristol Bay. Um, a lot of people, people describe it as it's the donut hole inside of a big donut of a mining district. So, you know, Alaska has always been an extractive state starting with the fur trade, you know, you know, before the U S purchased Alaska from Russia and, and then later became a state, you know, there are all these waves of extraction that have taken place. And, and I think, a lot of people just sort of have that mindset. Well, that's the way that that we are going to have a robust economy is is by just bringing in these these boom bust waves of development. Um, but not only is there so if Pebble were to be developed, it would set precedent and create infrastructure for other projects like it to be built. But not only is there that, that concern in Bristol Bay, there are um, minerals all up and down the, the west coast of Alaska. And even, you know, in the pebble tapes that were brought to light this past fall, there was talk of potential cost sharing with a transportation corridor and um, a power corridor that you know that that would power Pebble, and a project up in uh, off of the Kuskokwim River, upstream from most of the communities uh, in the Yukon Kuskokwim, um, called the Donlin Gold Project, and there was talk of of connectivity between those and, you know, and then Ada. Oh my goodness, I uh, I can't remember what the words of the acronym. Ada is this agency in Alaska that is is intended to provide loans for for projects and they've 
they have approved monies that would be applied to to a roadway, the, the road to Ambler. So it's like, you know, if you piece all of these things together, there's the, the fear that there's going to just be a mining district that will go from Bristol Bay all the way up to, you know, nor- northern Alaska. And in my mind, the devastation associated with that will pretty much wipe out all the indigenous communities all up and down the, the west coast of Al- the western edge of Alaska. It's um, it's a fearsome thought, but that's it, it's a mindset that we're up against. And and so we're we're talking about not just not just and this is a big just um, the inevitable devastation of the wild salmon runs that would be in proximity of this mining giant, vast mining district, uh, should the genie get let out of the bottle here with pebble. Mm -hmm. But you're also talking about, uh, sovereign, the sovereignty of, of people that have lived here for thousands of years. Um, I, I don't think that's really apparent in the conversation that most people are, um, mounting. Certainly, you know, the mine proponents are not, at all taking that into consideration um and i I can't think of anybody more appropriate to talk about it than you especially you know with the conversation we're having today about how far back your family and your heritage comes from this place so to to kind of wrap up where we are currently with pebble the u.s army corps of engineers denied pebble a dredge and fill permit back in november Pebble has appealed that decision. And where do we go from here? So um, we're seeking permanent protections for Bristol Bay. And, um, but the initial path pathway toward that we feel is a return to a tactic or a strategy that we pursued prior to the Trump administration. And we almost got there. Uh, with the um, the Bristol Bay Watershed Assessment. The Bristol Bay Watershed Assessment was this comprehensive analysis of, of the area associated with the pebble deposit and um, the people of that area. Um, and the reason it was initiated was because there was a request by six tribes to um, for EPA to use their veto power under the Clean Water Act, um, Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, there is a subsection C that um, prohibits dredge and fill material from being dumped in the waters of the United States. And in this case, the dredge and fill material would, uh, would apply to um, the tailings, the mine tailings. The, the waters would be the, the headwaters of the um, Quijac and uh, Nushigak rivers. And, uh, you know, th- we felt like that, that would be a really good way to, um, to keep the mine from moving forward. And the, the EPA made it evident that they were uh, about to, to use that veto power um, when they were approaching the end of the Bristol Bay Watershed Assessment by releasing their proposed determination and, and having a final comment period associated with that. And 
um, there were not many people who commented against that proposed determination. It was amazing the numbers of people who turned out and it, it felt like we had already won, you know, when, when the, the comment period happened in the last hearing associated with the Bristol Bay watershed assessment occurred. But not long after that, there was a, a lawsuit that halted that process and just em, embroiled all that good work into just the abyss, it just kind of put, pushed, pushed it away. But we're hoping that the EPA will return to um, the idea of that, that possibility and, and actually use their authority under the Clean Water Act to, to prohibit mine tailings from being housed at the headwaters of the, in this case, because we're looking at the smaller mine plan that was put forward, um, it would just be at the headwaters of the, or it would be a, um, you know, a prohibition of a earthen tailings dam being built on the North Fork of the Kuchtuli River, which drains into the Nushigak. Which is one of the two main arteries that are uh, drainages in Bristol Bay. Yes. Um, okay. So point one is from here is we are urging our lawmakers to let the EPA know that they should exercise the power afforded them under the 404C Clean Water Act and veto Pebble's current proposal. And it, if I understand correctly, the second thing and really the 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 home run in this is permanent protection um now I've, i understand further that the current idea behind a permanent protection plan would be something called the jay and bella hammond national fisheries area so that seems particularly appropriate and it seems particularly germane to our conversation today who who were those folks to your family personally, and what would an act of protection in their name look like? Jay and Bella Hammond, they were um, really amazing people to me. They represent like quint the quintessential Alaska couple. <laughs> so um, Jay Hammond was our governor uh, for for two terms, and um, I. I had the pleasure of knowing him because Jay and Bella raised their their two girls in Naknik and their set net site was just upstream from mine. So I would see them on the beach. I'd see them around town. Uh, sometimes we'd see them in Anchorage. Bella, Bella is from um, the, the Nushigak. Um, she was raised in Dillingham. And her, her and Jay met when she was um, a nurse and, um, in Dillingham, at, I think at the Kanakanak Hospital. And I think Jay was up there guiding. But that's how they met. And then they made a life together in Bristol Bay. And Jay started getting involved in politics when um, he, he decided to run for office. So he was part of the legislature for a while. And then he eventually became governor and he was, he had this remarkable way of reaching across party lines to do good for the people that he was there to serve. And unfortunately, I think a lot of, a lot of our lawmakers 
don't think of their positions as service. They, they think of how they can serve themselves. But um, I don't think anybody could ever accuse Jay Hammond of doing that. He, he did some really great things around, uh, you know, when, when Alaska became an oil state because the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was built. You know, there was the, the Settlement Act and, and then the, the pipeline was built and then the oil started flowing. And he had a lot of um, foresight when it came to trying to, you know, I think he had reservations about Alaska being that kind of extractive state. Um, because he, you know, he was looking to um, the model that was set in Venezuela, and he actually uh, had had quite a bit of foresight um, in uh, creating the permanent fund dividend, you know, so that we could have have that Alaskans could have that for a rainy day, and and also pay out dividends to Alaska residents. So it was it was pretty visionary, you know, that he even you know came came up with that. And um, but when it came to the proposed pebble mine that reared its head not long before the end of Jay's life, he had a lot to say about it, <laughs> including I I can't imagine a worse place for a mine uh, except for my my kitchen, <laughs> you know, which is a wonderful you know quippy way to point back to food you, you know Comes the back fundamentals food. of food mm-hmm. um yeah i just i hope that if if his family listens to what i had to say about him that they don't feel that i misspoke and that i'm honoring his memory he was a wonderful man and and i think that having something named for him and and bella who was also a fierce you know even after Jay was gone, you know, she got out and she spoke up about Pebble and provided leadership to us. And um, it's really sad that she departed this world during the time of COVID because it's been really hard for us to honor and memorialize her um, in this time. But I think it would be so fitting to name a reserve for them. Do we know what the, the mechanics of that would be at this point? Like, how would that be shaped? Is it an act of Congress? And what, what, would, uh, what would the protections look like? I really wish I could speak to this um, more fully, but it's not within my purview of work as an organizer. And it's, it's something that I think um, people are laying the groundwork for quietly and um, I'm not really privy to to the conversations, but I know that um, you know if if people want to dig into it a, a little bit more, uh, I would recommend visiting the United Tribes of Bristol Bay website or their social media channels because they've issued a statement around you know where they're hoping things will go, and I, I that would help help give people a good idea about about that. And I, yeah, I'm, I apologize for not being able to dive in deeper um, around that. I know it's a work in progress, um, and uh, I think our listeners are keen to know what's going on in the minute as as quickly as we can. But that's good advice. Uh, stay tuned at avaswild.com or at utbb.org uh, or Salmon State or Stop Pebble Mine Now. 
um, or even save Bristol Bay uh, to, to keep up to date on what's going on there. So you mentioned Bella. Bella had a wonderful small luminary part at the end of the wild, our documentary. And she talks about, you've got to speak up and you got to speak up often to make your voice heard. And she had such a light in her eyes and such a conviction. And she was such a, uh, was such an honor to just get to meet her, much less interview her. Um, and I just admired that, that vigor so much in her. I know you have some of the same exact qualities you, you you represent that just unending stamina to keep fighting for what you love like bella what keeps your light shining to get up and do the work every single day you've been at it for a long time my friend uh it's a big question i feel like it's you know it's tied to like bigger sort of existential thinking um in this work, I've continued to grow concern around if the salmon go, what's left? And, you know, like how, what is the tipping point of being on a livable planet? And it, but at the same time, I have to recognize my, my own health and mental well-being and uh, just try to balance out the joy and the fear associated with, you know, with thinking about or the burden of th thinking about like how much longer can we, can we sustain the, the ways that we've been living that point toward destruction and how, how are we going to reshape our thinking and our living to turn that around? And I've, I've been in network with some really great people who are trying to find solutions to better living. And, and I, I feel very fortunate about that. And I think it's the people that I've, I've been working with during this time that I've been focused on this issue that, that's part of what keeps me going because I know they're working hard in the same way that I am. And I want to keep working hard for them. And I want to keep working hard for my kids, but also recognizing that I, I have to focus on the joy and the beauty of, of the natural world. Uh, because it just, I feel like it, it brings me clarity in my purpose and music helps too. <laughs> I've been play I've been trying to, I've been playing music and it fills my heart um, little by little. I, I like to think that I'm becoming a better musician. Um, I play music with my boyfriend. We have a project called Sunny Porch Collaborative, but I, I play music on my own too. Um, when I'm by myself, I started, I started playing, pick, I picked, I've always loved to sing, but I picked up a guitar when I couldn't go fishing one year because I had to have surgery. I had a cyst that um, had to, to be removed um, an ovarian cyst and, and it um, was brought to light just as I was getting ready to go out to Bristol Bay. And so I had to have surgery and can't lift anything after having surgery. And, um, but I could pick up a guitar and started strumming some simple chords and so that I could accompany myself in my singing. And 
and then it was a, you know, it was a, a really good way for me to have something for myself when my kids were small too, because small children are pretty consuming <laughs> of your energy. And so, so I would just pick up my guitar and go through my rotation of the few songs that I knew and little by little that kind of grew. And, um, that's been a huge solace for me <laughs> being able to go to music when I need to. I can't think of a more perfect time for you to maybe play something for us. Oh, play something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I don't have my guitar with me back here, uh, where I'm, I'm recording, oh. but, um, but maybe you could sing. Yeah, I could sing. Um, there's a song that I like to sing that's acapella. Um, it's a song that was written, um, by a woman named Ruth Unger, um, of the mammals and, um, be sure to check out their music. If you have a chance of listeners, they're, they're doing really good things. They're, you know, they're, they're really trying to make the world a better place in their own way. And, um, they had, uh, Pete Seeger as a teacher and they, you know, performed with, with Pete Seeger at festivals and um, the Ruth Unger wrote a song in honor of the, the water protectors at Standing Rock. Um, and it's called my baby drinks water. And um, I haven't sung it in a while. So hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll make it through. Um, <clears throat> I just need to clear my throat. Sure. Sure. Thank you. This is a gift. Okay. My baby drinks water. My baby drinks tea. My baby eats salmon from the Bristol Bay streams. My baby drinks milk Mother Nature gave me. So please spare the water for my little ones and me. Now money buys houses and clothing and more. And money buys food at the big grocery store. And money buys trinkets and money buys toys. But it won't buy the earth back for our little girls and boys. Do you measure your wealth by the size of your purse? What size is your coffin? What size is your hearse? What size is your heart if you put money first? High over the children and their hunger and thirst. My baby drinks water. My baby drinks tea. My baby eats salmon from the Bristol Bay streams. My baby drinks milk Mother Nature gave me. So please spare the water for my little ones and me. Phew. 
Oh, Mel, thank you. I started I, a little high. Every so. time. <laughs> you, I think that's the best version I've ever heard you sing of that song. I love oh, geez. it. And thank you. I'm sure I'm serious. And uh, there's a treat for y'all out there. Whew. Um, hi, man, I get a little verklempt here. It, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and uh, honestly, we've got a little speed round we give everybody at the end of each conversation. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to be any different today, but boy, it's, it's tough to follow that. Thank you so much. What a wonderful, vulnerable and beautiful gift uh, for all of us to share. So here's the last little bit um, for the uh, Save What You Love podcast show here. Um, and you got to use your imagination, but let's just say your house were on fire and let's hope that never happens. Um, so, you know, if, if, that, if that were the case, though, you, of course, would get your loved ones and your beloved pets and animals out of the house, of course, first. But if that were happening, what would be the one physical thing you would take with you? My Martin guitar. That seems pretty self-evident. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice call. All right. So let's now just, let's get a little deeper here, a little more esoteric, and let's call it your spiritual house, the things that are, that make Melanie, Melanie. What are the two most important things about your life that you take with you? My food spirit um, and imagination around food. Does that count as one or two? I, I call that one only because I want to hear you talk more. So, <laughs> um, okay. So, so that and my my music spirit and um, all that's associated the, all of the spark that's associated with that. Beautiful. Um, I I don't think I told you. I've finally written some songs for the first time. Marcus and what? I. Uh, yeah, Marcus and I have written a couple of songs together, and we submitted one to uh, an Echo Acoustic Music Festival called Echo Sono, and uh, we submitted um, two uh, the two that we have to the Alaska Folk Fest, which is going to happen virtually this year. Is so, that typically in Juneau? It is. Yeah, yes, I've been to that. It's wonderful. It's a really wonderful festival. Um, that congratulations. That's exciting. I can't wait <laughs> Thank to hear. You. Um, Thanks. well, so to, f to finish up our little hypothetical fire situation, um, is there anything you'd leave in the house to burn? Let it go. All the too much stuff that I have. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not the best spring cleaner. And so things sort of accumulate. I'm not a hoarder. It's, you know, it's not like that. It's just that, you know, when you live someplace for a while, you end up, you know, hanging on to too much stuff sometimes. And I, I think I'd let that burn. Well, the, as the song so eloquently says, you, you know, you can't take it with you. So, <laughs> all right, Melanie Brown, I'm so grateful for your time, for your friendship, for your incredible hard work that is an inspiration to me. How can people get involved with your work? How can the people stay connected with you and the super critical work that's going on to protect Bristol Bay right now? 
I'd recommend that people um, start by visiting the stoppebblemindnow.org website because that's where you can um, get get a breakdown about um, the call to protect Bristol Bay. You can learn more about 404C, um, and you can take action there as well. Um, If you're a small business or an organization, you can add your name to the list of supporters. Um, I mentioned United Tribes of Bristol Bay before. Um, Please visit them, you know, they're ultimately, they're the lead on, on this fight and people should always be looking to them because, you know, they're the first people of Bristol Bay. They represent the first people of Bristol Bay. I myself work for Salmon State. Uh, SalmonState.org is our, our website. If you want to visit the salmon-centered work that we're focused on um, and the various campaigns and learn more about those. Um, my social media channel is Fishwineski. If you want to like visit my Insta feed, I don't, I don't post a whole lot in there, but when there, there are updates and stuff, I'll, I'll share there. Um, and yeah, there's, there's just, there's a lot of great stuff going on. Um, I think a lot of synergy that's happening across sector, you know, different sectors, it, there's exciting stuff happening around food. Um, Slow Food USA is about to host the Slow Fish gathering that's happening. Um, and Mark's film will be screened there. That's right. So, We're going to be together again on the 20th. That's a nice plug for a screening of the wild. And uh, Melanie and I will be on the panel together after that. And you can, uh, you can get information about that, actually, uh, and all of the links that Melanie's describing at avaswild.com forward slash action, uh, or just go to avaswild.com and click on the action tab. And uh, if you want to get on our newsletter list, uh, just click on connect, and we'll get you the info on how to see the film and how to connect deeper with all of these issues. Melanie, Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Can't wait to see you up in Bristol Bay. And uh, until then, be safe out there. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks so much for having me. Bye now. Bye-bye. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Save What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.